Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by Aveta. You are in the right place. We are going to give our audience members just a few minutes to get settled, and we'll start the presentation in about two minutes. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us today for this Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by Aveta. We're gonna give everyone just about a minute to settle in and we'll start the presentation in about 60 seconds. Thank you. Once again, hello everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Celebrating Safety, Positive Reinforcement with Validity and Reliability, sponsored by Aveta. My name is Barry Botino, and I am an Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's event. We'd like to thank you all for joining us today, and on behalf of the National Safety Council, we hope that you're all remaining safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll start the presentation in a couple of minutes, but first I have just a few housekeeping items to share with everyone. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean that the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, just click on the Q&A button, which is located at the bottom of your screen, type in your question and press the send button. You may ask your question at any time at all during our presentation. You do not have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to everyone's question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speaker today. After the presentation, You'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenter. With us today is Corey Worden who serves as safety advisor for the City of Houston Health Department. 
Corey has more than 15 years of experience in the safety world. He has published nine books, including works that have been published by the American Society of Safety Professionals, the Association of Occupational Health Professionals, and the Institute for Safety and Health Management. Among the numerous awards Corey has won are the 2015 National Safety Council Rising Stars of Safety Recognition and the 2020 Houston Health Department Excellence in Community Service. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. And Corey, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Great, thank you. <clears throat> okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate the introduction and I definitely appreciate the invitation to, to speak here today. It's always great to talk with like-minded safety professionals about relevant issues. So within today, what we're gonna talk about is, is celebrating safety, which of course is the intent of any you know, recognition or incentive program. So of course there's you know, numerous different misfires that can happen you know, in terms of actually providing negative reinforcement instead of positive reinforcement or creating any kind of toxic culture or inadvertently, inadvertently promoting non-reporting or different issues like that. So when we're putting together any, any type of incentive or recognition program, we wanna be able to watch out for these things and make sure that we're doing it not only in a positive manner that you know, reinforces the safety culture, but also in a way that encourages you know, valid and reliable incident prevention. So we'll talk about how to kind of dig into that today. And to start that, what we'll talk about first is what's in the presentation. <laughs> so as you can see here, we'll talk about the culture change that's required to get toward what we call high reliability operations. So when we talk about high reliability, we're talking about consistency, validity, meaning that we know the controls we have are preventing the incidents and reliability, meaning if we continue to follow that plan and those controls will continue to prevent incidents. And so to get to that point, of course, it requires that, that positive culture change. And then within that positive reinforcement, of course, plays a big part. So it, it enables and kind of catalyzes that culture change. So we wanna be able to do that without any misfires, You know, like we said, creating any kind of unfortunate uh, toxic environment or peer pressure, negative peer pressure, I should say, um, or any type of non-reporting. And then we'll talk about how to do that in a, in a positive way, proactive way that prevents incidents and recognizes and incentivizes that. So to get started, first we'll talk about what we're trying to get. So we gotta know what the end state is as far as what we're trying to achieve. So with high reliability, um, if you haven't heard of this before, high reliability is kind of the product that came from the Three Mile Island disaster where a lot of people sat down and they looked at these incidents that require a lot of very complex systems, a lot of people being involved in a lot of complex parts. And so within that, they said, well, even though these organizations have the potential for catastrophic failures, you know, whether it be a nuclear disaster or whether it be an airplane crash or whether it be a space travel um, disaster and catastrophic failure like Challenger or Columbia, even though they have this potential for catastrophic failure, what we believe is that if we put this program in place and we watch out for validity and reliability, and we continue to watch for any potential failures, whether it be a near miss or an actual incident that can be responded to, then we're able to consistently implement ever better hazard controls and achieve ever better reliability and validity. So within that, they, they created high reliability theory. There's a lot of people involved in that and a lot of different research, which continues to this day, but it's all very interesting. 
And that served as the counterpoint to what they called normal accident theory. So with normal accident theory, you had a separate group of people that looked at these things like Three Mile Island. And they said, well, you know, we had this tightly coupled complex system with a lot of moving parts and a lot of human factors. And so we believe that there's no way there's not gonna be a catastrophic failure. It's just a matter of when that's gonna happen. And they called that normal accident theory. So high reliability is a counterpoint to that saying that regardless of the potential for catastrophe, the amount of human factors involved, the amount of tightly coupled complex systems and high operational tempos, we can, we can still prevent these things. And so that of course relied on a lot of different program components such as what, what they called priority at the time, now we know is a value on safety, is something that's always there and it doesn't change. And then of course they talked about standardizing design and procedures so they can make sure that things meet a minimum level of safety that's required. And then within that, any procedures are gonna be limited trial and error. So they're not figuring out things on the fly. They're testing things and making sure that things work the way they're supposed to. And then of course, when the controls are put in place, that's done by redundant measures to make sure that there's always a fallback. It's not just a single point failure that's relying on one control. And if that doesn't work, then everything else fails. And so to do that, of course, they had decentralization also where you know within your, within your human resources, we wanna make sure that it's not the kind of thing where if something's not known at three o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, then either A, nothing happens or B, it, um, it's done in a way that's not entirely safe or, or unknown. So within that decentralization means that we know the people that have the proper subject matter expertise, they have the level of training and they have the level of experience to be able to make those decisions. So it de decentralizes that chain of command to where it doesn't have to be that strictly hierarchical formula. And then the next thing there is, of course, they want to exercise these things, and that plays into reliability and validity to make sure that things work, these things work the way they're supposed to. And then, of course, they follow that up with leading indicators to validate these things in real time, whether we're talking about um, inspection materials such as equipment, condition, inventory, training records, audit materials, or whether we're talking about actual work practices where we're going to see if hazards are identified in real time, if SOPs are followed, if um, if PPE is used in real time, all these things that have to happen to make sure things are safe. So it not only accounts for the conditions in the workplace, like we said, such as the facilities and the equipment and the training, but it also relies on the behaviors and the practices, which is real time hazard, hazard identification assessment and control. So to get to all these things here, that creates that high reliability culture. Now, of course, you know, I'd be naive to think that that in itself wasn't another, you know, six hours of material to talk about. But as you can see there, it's, it's a ways to go and that requires a significant you know, positive culture change to get to that point. So if we're trying to get to high reliability operations, then we wanna be able to look at that pragmatically. So we wanna say, okay, so what does that look like in the workplace? Well, what that tells us is we wanna have preoccupation with failure. So that's gonna allow us to be able to identify hazards in real time and make sure that we're assessing those and analyzing to put in the best possible hazard controls. Then of course we communicate those expectations. Then we validate that they're being done in real time with inspections, observations, near miss reporting. And then we follow up any type of incident or near miss with an investigation and incident analysis to figure out how we can continually improve. So that not only tells us that we're preoccupied with failure, but in turn that also defers to expertise because like we said, with decentralization, we don't wanna rely on just having you know, one person in that next step in the chain of command that has to be there to make that decision because that could lead to either complete stagnation or it could lead to something unsafe happening. 
or, or best case, something unknown happening. So within that, we want to be able to defer those experts and they might not be, you know, the highest ranking person on the scene. They may not be someone in a, you know, in a senior chief position, but it may be the person with the most subject matter expertise in that area that's being, being worked at the time. So if we're able to decentralize and defer to experts, then we're able to get the best possible subject matter expertise, regardless of whether that person is, you know, hierarchical on the chain of command. And so the next thing there is you want to be reluctant to simplify. So what we mean by that is that, you know, if, um, if a uh, engineering control is implemented, but there's a chance that there could still be hazards that pop up outside of that engineering control, then it may require an administrative control on top of that, or it may require administrative control and PPE. But what we're saying there is that we want to make sure that we don't just take the first solution and expect that that's going to work every time. Sometimes it requires more analysis. Sometimes it requires more resources. So we want to be reluctant to simplify so that we don't settle on something that's not entirely effective or entirely realistic. And so then once we're doing that, we want to make sure these things are sensitive to operations. So what we mean by that is, you know, if we have a, if we have a process in place that uh, can only be done by one person in the organization, then what that means is if it comes to that process and that person isn't there every time, then it's going to cause a, a bottleneck or a, or a stall on operations. Same thing is with safety. If we're doing, you know, inspections and observations, for example, but for us to do that, then it requires, you know, such personnel commitments or such time burdens that it stops the rest of the operations then you know, we might be making sure that we're safer or we're validating our safety controls, but at the same time, we're stopping operations to do that. So not necessarily everybody wins. So if we're sensitive to operations, then we make sure that all of our safety leadership and safety management systems rely within the context of the organization's operations so that things can continue to function. And then lastly, of course, we have commitment to resilience. So what that tells us is, that if we have a near miss or if we have an incident even, or even if we have a, you know, a severe incident, then we're able to figure out what happened, how it happened, why it happened. And then we're able to continually improve our hazard analysis and our hazard controls and our communication so that we're able to continually get better, continually improve and continually prevent those incidents in the future. So that commitment to resilience is very important there because what that tells us is not only do we learn from potential failure modes, whether it be near miss or an actual incident, but we not only learn from it, but we continually improve from it and so that we're committed to resilience. So everything there plays into a high reliability organization. Now, of course, again, this can be looked at even further to figure out how to make this practical and how to make this pragmatic. So, you know, these are all great things. We say, well, we want to be preoccupied with failure. We want to defer to experts. You know, it's easy to believe all these things, but to actually put that in practice is a, is a different thing. So what we do now is we look at operationalization. So how do we operationalize these things? So if we look at that in the context of a safety management system, you know, whether we're talking about uh, ISO or whether we're talking about ANSI or any number of, any number of uh, program models, what we have here is the core components of a safety management system. So first we have our infrastructure, you know, whether it's a safety committee, or whether it's uh, several levels of safety committees or, or whatnot, there's several different ways to do that, of course. But we wanna have the infrastructure so that we have the subject matter experts represented and we have that lateral and vertical communication so that we're able to continually improve. 
And then of course we have our hazard analysis. So we look at what hazards exist, who is at risk for them, what part of the operation they exist in. And then from them, we figure out the risk assessment. So we can look at frequency, severity, and we can determine whether or not these are high risk, medium risk, or low risk. And then depending on what that is, then we're able to figure out what our hazard controls are. So we're able to do that based on whether it's regulations or whether it's hierarchy controls or whether it's uh, situational awareness and coaching and exercises, we're able to implement the layers of hazard controls that make things at the lowest possible risk level. And then within that, we communicate those expectations. So now we know what we're gonna do as far as the controls. So now we gotta let people know how to do that. You know, whether we eliminated a hazard, whether we substituted something else, whether we put an engineering control in place, like an interlock or a barrier, or whether we have an administrative control, and then from there, we have our PPE. So whatever that is, we want to make sure that we're training our teams on how to do that. Otherwise, they won't know what the expectations are. So then from that point, then we go on to our leading indicators, where we're going to be able to validate that those things are being done every day in real time. So whether we're looking for inspections, like we said, such as facilities issues, equipment issues, or uh, training records, or whether we're talking about observations, such as safe work practices and following SOPs, using PPE in real time. So whether, whatever it is, we can validate that these things are happening. And then from there, we follow up with our lagging indicators. So we're able to measure, so we can look at the incident rates, whether it's total incident rate or recordable rate or DART rate. And then from there, we can figure out what happened, how it happened, why it happened. And then we can put ever better, ever continuing, improving controls so that we can prevent these things in the future. And so within that, as you can see, those are ways to now operationalize as high reliability principles. So it's no longer just a, you know, a nice thought or kind of a daydream, but now we're talking about something that we can actually figure out what we want to happen and how we want it to happen. And so we put this safety management in place. And now, as you can see here, these things, they all tie together. So first things first there, we want to be preoccupied with failure. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, that means that we're going to constantly do our hazard analysis and our risk assessment. And that means that we're going to constantly watch out for hazard controls to make sure we have the best possible, most effective controls, whether it's eliminating hazard or substituting something or engineering it out or administrating it or administering it, however you pronounce that. But uh, as you can see there, we want to be preoccupied with failure and these things give us the means to do that. And so at the same time, now we're deferring to experts. So if we're doing a hazard analysis, let's say that I want to analyze the hazards on a factory line with a, a blow mold, a filler, a packer, and a palletizer. Well, of course, the mechanics that work on those units are certainly going to know the best practices and where the hazards are. And they're going to know what they need to make it as safe as possible, you know, whether it's an interlock or a SOP or a PPE. And so then from there, we get those people involved in our safety committees and they get involved with the hazard analysis and the risk assessment, and they can give us those recommendations. So now we're deferring to experts. Then we go on. Now we want to be reluctant to simplify. So we don't want to just assume that one thing is going to work. So what that means is now we're putting these controls in place and we're constantly making sure we have redundancy. So we not only eliminate the hazard, but we, you know, or excuse me, we, we, um, maybe we substitute something less dangerous, but then we still need an engineering control. Or maybe we have an engineering control, but we still need an administrative control. Or we have an administrative control, we still need PPE. So we want to make sure that we're being as effective as possible. And then we're also going to make sure we provide training so that people know how to use those controls. And then on top of that, 
then we're going to make sure that the training includes the hazard control. So if I'm training somebody on how to move a patient, then it's not enough just to teach them that patients are potentially, you know, ergonomic nightmares, or excuse me, not, I shouldn't say nightmares, ergonomic challenges um, as far as patient handling. But we're also going to make sure that we have the equipment and we're going to make sure that um, we have the right training so that we can use the equipment in real time. So we got to make sure all these parts are covered. So it's not the kind of thing where we wonder why people aren't using the controls, such as equipment or following a process. And then we find out later they were never trained or we find out they were trained on how dangerous the hazard is, but they didn't get trained on how to use the equipment to prevent the hazard from hurting them. So as you can see there, there's a lot of things that we want to watch out for. And if we get very simplistic about it, then we'll miss something. So then we go further. So now we've got the hazards, we've got the controls in place, we've got the communication. So we're talking about the expectations and we're talking about what needs to happen to be safe. And so now we're gonna make sure these things happen in the context of operations. So now we're sensitive to operations because when we do those inspections or those observations, that all fits into real time. So we're observing as team members are working or we're, uh, we're reporting near misses and that way we can follow up on it as we continually improve. So it doesn't you know, completely stop operations. And then at the same time with those controls, you know, whether it's equipment or whether it's an SOP, we got to make sure that those things work in the context of operations so that, you know, we're not rendering an operation safe by stopping the operation. And at the same time, we can make sure that all of our safety indicators, those are derived from real world operations. So it's not the kind of thing where safety exists in a separate silo. And so now we've got our hazards, we've got our hazard controls in place, we've got our communication. So now we're validating those things are being done whether it's inspections or observations or numerous reports. And then from there, should anything happen where you see the incident, now we're gonna be commitment to, uh, we're gonna have a commitment to resilience by following up on those things, figuring out what happened, how it happened and how we can improve. So now we're gonna be committed to resilience. So as you can see there, each part of that safety management system creates one of those high reliability principles or more. You know, whether we're identifying hazards, so we're preoccupied with failure, or whether I'm asking the mechanics or the nurses, you know, I need your expertise to tell me where the hazards are and what we need to, to help prevent those things from hurting someone. So now we're getting people's expertise. And now we're going to be reluctant to simplify by putting the best possible controls. And then we're going to communicate those expectations. Then we're going to validate those things are being done. So now we're also being sensitive to operations. And we're doing all these things as we operate. So the continual improvement is constant. And then of course, we're gonna be commitment, uh, we're gonna be committed to resilience. Should something happen, we're gonna make sure that we improve on it. So all these things now operationalize that high reliability organization. So now it's not just a not just a dream. Now we actually know how we're gonna do it. And so to do that, now we break it down, we gotta know the hazards, we gotta know the controls, we gotta make sure everybody has access to the controls. So if it's PPE, then we got to make sure they have PPE. We got to make sure the PPE fits. We got to make sure that the PPE does what it's supposed to do without creating more hazards. You know, then we got to make sure that people know how to maintain situational awareness and how to identify those hazards in real time. So they're able to identify the respiratory hazard and they're able to get the respirator. They've already got the medical questionnaire and the fit test. They're able to don the respirator, get a seal check, and now they're safe. Whereas if they don't have the situational awareness, they may not see the need for the respirator. 
which means they don't get the respirator, they don't put the respirator on, and there's an exposure that takes place. And so then, of course, like we said, we want to know how to, how to respond when the hazards are identified. We want to know what those safety protocols are. And then we want people to choose to engage in these safety improvements. So like we said just a second ago, if we look back here, with those high reliability principles and those safety management system components, we want people to participate. So we want them to tell us hazards. We want them to tell us recommendations on controls. We want them to give us information such as safety stories and near miss reports and best practices. And we want them to help us with those observations and near miss reports and leading indicators. And then we want them to help us with improvements. So if we're doing all these things now, now we're on the track to becoming safer. So we got our safety management system. Our safety management system enables and catalyzes those high reliability principles. And so now what's gonna happen is now we need that positive reinforcement to keep this thing going. So as we're putting these things in place now, as you see, you know, if we look at the Heinrich model, you know, from, from years ago, we know that we have to be able to not only put science-based controls in place, you know, such as engineering controls and barriers and interlocks and even sandbags on the doors during a hurricane, you know, all these things are science-based. They're based around material solutions and things that could be quantified and measured. But we also know that what Heinrich said, at least, is that 88% of these incidents are going to be based around unsafe acts or unsafe work practices. So now we have to look at leadership because not only do we provide the hazard control, you know, we provided the training, we provided the PPE, we provided the equipment, but we have to make sure these things are being used in real time. And so that means that we have to have people's participation and their engagement. And that's an art form. You know, the Army, I'll tell you that leadership is you know, the most difficult art form there is. So within that, this requires engagement and participation. So the best way to do that, of course, is that we want to make sure that people have what they need to be successful, whether it's equipment, knowledge, you know, knowledge, skills, abilities, but we want to make sure they choose to use those things in real time and they're able to identify the hazards in real time. And so that's an art form, that's leadership. So if we look at this in terms of safety management, we also know at the same time that each of those safety management system components systematically knocks down the risk because we have the people in place or such a matter experts. They're gonna talk about the hazards and the controls they need. And then we're gonna talk about the risk and we're gonna figure out how we're gonna implement these hazard controls. And then we're gonna communicate the expectations and we're gonna validate that they're being done and that people are able to identify hazards in real time. Then we're going to watch out for any lagging indicators and we're going to follow up. So each time we do one of these things, we're knocking down the risk a little bit more because we're putting in another layer of hazard control. So if we know that we have to build engagement and we have to build engagement because we have to put these things in place that are going to lower the risk for us, then we have to find a way to where we can get people to where they want to be involved. And one more reason for that is because as you see here, even if we put all those science-based controls in place, such as elimination, substitution, engineering, you know, if we're talking about changing out a chemical or if we're talking about removing a tripping hazard, or if we're talking about uh, putting a barrier in place or putting an interlock or, or any of these number of controls, then we also have to make sure that people are able to use these things in real time. 
so they know how to follow the SOP and they know where the equipment's located and how to use it. And they know what PPE they need. They know how to wear it. They know how to don it. They know how to doff it safely. So all these things, of course, require training. And now once we provide the equipment and the training, we have to hope that people are going to use these things in real time. And so once again, that's a leadership, uh, a leadership ability. That's an art form. So we know that we have to get people engaged. We know we have to provide our due diligence. We know we have to train them so they're able to identify the hazards and use them in real time. And then we know we have to validate these things are happening every day in real time. So we got a lot of, a lot of leadership on the plate. We've got a lot, of, a lot of art to do, so to speak. You know, we can do all the science pretty easily, but we have to, we have to make sure that we're um, getting people what they need to be successful. So when we're validating these things, of course, I know here I'm, you know, singing to the choir, but as you can see there, of course, with the lagging indicators, we have that incident that's going down the hill. The only thing the lagging indicators help with is that we're able to figure out what went wrong. So we can look at the incident report, we can look at the comp claims, and as you see that guy's chasing it around, trying to figure out what happened, trying to figure out what got by. And at the same time, of course, they're losing money, they're filing reports, all kinds of things are happening. But you've got this other guy on the air side and he sees that incident coming toward him. So he's able to predict it because he's looking at inspection reports and observation reports and near miss reports. So he's able to predict that incident coming toward him and able to stop it. So again, like we said, we have to get to where people want to be involved, they want to engage, they want to participate, and they want to work safely. So that tells us that now we have this gap. So if on one side of this gap, we have these you know, potentially unsafe conditions and unsafe practices. And so then we want to get across that bridge. We want to get to the high reliability culture. So we want to make sure we have a value on safety, safe design, safe procedures, redundant controls, decentralized chain of command, you know, we want to make sure that we have that lateral communication and we have the continual improvement. So how the heck do we get from point A to point B? Well, we know we have to have a culture change. And we know that culture change has to get us to where we have those safety management, uh, excuse me, safety management components. And the safety management components have to create the high reliability principles. So to get to that point, we have to provide leadership. And we have to provide leadership because what we also know is that 50% of the population is going to be subject to what's going on around them. So if they have their 25% defiantly unsafe and they're telling people not to use the controls and not to use the PPE and don't follow the SOP, then if that's what they're hearing all the time, then there's a 50% chance that they're going to do that. But at the same time, if they have the people that are diligently safe and they're telling them, make sure that you, you know, let us know if there's a hazard, Use the hazard controls. Remember your training. Use the PPE. Follow the SOP. If that's what they're hearing all the time, then there's a much big, much more significant chance that they're going to follow that culture. So what that tells us is that if somebody who's subject to local culture is surrounded by people, then they're going to hear one person telling them to be defiantly unsafe. They're going to hear one person telling them to be diligently safe. And so they're going to have to make a decision. So ultimately, depending on who's around them at the time, we want to make sure that what they're hearing is the positive, proactive safety message. So we would definitely prefer them to be surrounded by people that are diligently safe. And so what that tells us is one more time, we have to be able to provide leadership so that we're convincing and gaining the support of all the people that are 
subject to local culture. So we want to increase the people that are diligently safe so that they in turn influence the people that are subject to local culture. So they want to participate. They want to be engaged, which means that they're going to tell us where hazards are. They're going to help us with recommendations. They're going to help us with communication. They're going to help us with engagement and observations and inspections. And they're going to help us with analyses. So if we get all these people involved in those safety components, then that's going to create those high reliability principles. And so then lastly, of course, we can break it down pragmatically. So if we look at if we look at the way that we break down a safety management system, you know, we can't rely on the safety professionals to do everything themselves because it would be ineffective, inefficient, unfeasible. But if we look at this realistically, what we want is at the end of the day, we want safe behaviors and safe conditions. And then to get that, we have our safety management system, which creates the communication and the infrastructure and the hazard analysis and the hazard controls and the communication and the leading and lagging indicators. And so we know that to get the safe behaviors and safe conditions, we have these safety management systems. The safety management systems have to be implemented. They have to be part of the culture. So within that, we want all employees to be engaged, to participate, to follow the safe work practices, and we want them to communicate. And those are the things that build those hazard analysis and hazard controls and communication and leading and lagging indicators. And so if we want everybody to do those things, then we need that overall support. So to get the support, the next thing is the leadership. So we want the leadership to set the example and set the expectations and provide recognition and provide due diligence. So we wanna make sure that we're providing the right equipment and the right PPE and we're providing the training and we're setting the example. And then for positive reinforcement, we can recognize and incentivize these things. And then lastly, of course, occupational health and safety can oversee these things. So we can provide the consultation and the assistance and the support and the oversight and so what happens now is we're providing the support and oversight. So the leaders provide the recognition. The recognition fuels people to be engaged and to be involved and to participate. And the participation is what builds the safety management system. And the safety management system is what creates the safe behaviors and the safe conditions, which creates the high reliability principles. So as we can see there, we now know that to get from point A to point B across that bridge, the positive reinforcement is a beneficial part of that because if we positively reinforce people, then they'll get engaged, they'll participate. The engagement and participation build that safety management system, which builds the high reliability organization. But for us to make sure that we don't hit any kind of misfires or have anything that's counterproductive, then we have to be able to make sure that we're positively reinforcing safety and not just a particular number. So within that, the misfires that we want to watch out for, of course, are going to be things like we want to be careful tying incentives to lagging indicators. Reason being is OSHA actually put out, you know, a, a notice about this back in 2012, where they were saying that, you know, if incentive programs encourage or are perceived perceived to encourage non-reporting of incidents or you know, toxic cultures and things of that nature, then that, that's going to be a bad thing with OSHA. So when you tie things to lagging indicators, there's always the chance that, you know, if we were to tell somebody that we want you to reduce the incident rate by 25%, then what they can think is, you know, it's very possible 
to lower incident rate just by not reporting incidents or by pressuring people not to report incidents or anything like that. Or it could just be a lucky month, but we can't really validate or you know we can't make it reliable that what we did that month is gonna continue to lead to reductions. So when we look at this, we wanna tie things to leading indicators and the things that create those safe conditions and safe behaviors as opposed to just an arbitrary number because of course there's a number of ways to meet an arbitrary goal that don't really involve you know being safe it, it's kind of like if when i was in high school if my parents had told me they wanted me to you know get 100 on the math test um you know if i was so inclined which thankfully i was not but if, if i had no ethics and i was so inclined to cheat you know that's a way to get 100 on the test or it's possible to get 100 on the test by um um, just get you to show up and guess, you know, you just fill in the numbers and hope that you get the numbers right on the Cantron if it's a multiple choice test, you know, but what's a better solution is if my parents said, you know, we expect you to study for, you know, X amount of hours and we expect you to take the practice quizzes and we want to see that you pass the practice quizzes. And then we know that when you take the math test, your grade is valid and reliable. So same thing with safety is we want to promote and we want to recognize and incentivize the things that create safety as opposed to just picking a random number and hoping that we hit it. So within that, you know, um, we want to watch out so that um, we're able to um, make sure that we're promoting the things that create safety. And then of course that creates the, the uh, byproduct that we won't run afoul of OSHA because if we have those things that are incentivizing and recognizing leading indicators, then it's much less likely that it's gonna promote non-reporting or promote any kind of toxic culture that it might become a problem. So within that, um, if we tie this back into our safety management system, as you can see there, first things first, we wanna build that infrastructure and then we wanna be able to look at the hazards. And then from there, we wanna figure out what the controls are. And then we want to validate those controls are being used through the leading indicators. And then we want to make sure that we're watching for any near misses or anything that we can fix. And then we have our lagging indicators. And of course, the lagging indicators are made you know, valid and reliable by the leading indicators. So if we see that we have a reduction, but the leading indicators don't show safe conditions and safe behaviors, then that lagging indicator, you know, it could be a fluke or it could be good luck or it could be caused by a different reason. But then we want to figure out what happened and why it happened. And then we want to take the results of that investigation and that root cause analysis. If we want to take that back to our safety committee, and then we want to take it back through the hazard analysis. So we continue these things. And as you see there, each of those things is a different activity. It's a different program component. So if we look at our recognition that we want to do, we can tie recognition to each part of this. Okay? So same thing we said before. If we want people to be involved in the, the committees and the communication, we want people to provide hazards that they're seeing, you know, hazard identification. We want people to provide recommendations on hazard controls and help with the analysis. We want people to communicate safety stories and near miss reports and good catches. And we want people to help with inspections and observations and near miss reports. Each of these things is a, is a tangible, you know, tactical program component. So what that tells us, if we want to recognize people and incentivize people to get involved, then we recognize and incentivize those things, those program components. So 
specific. Here we go. If we go back again to the high reliability principles. So if we recognize and incentivize people to identify hazards and to help make recommendations on hazard controls, then now we're incentivizing and we're recognizing people to be preoccupied with failure. And if we want people to provide stories and near miss reports, then and they want us to give advice on hazard controls, then now we're deferring to experts. So if we have people involved in, you know, um, fault tree analyses or failure mode effects analyses or hazard job safety analysis, if we have people involved in these things, then now we're incentivizing them to be preoccupied with failure and we're incentivizing them to defer to experts and we're incentivizing them to be reluctant to simplify. And then now we're, we're, we're communicating and now we're doing our inspections and our observations. So now we're watching for real time if we have safe conditions and safe behaviors during the workday. So now we're being sensitive to operations. So if we incentivize someone to help with an inspection or an observation or a near miss report, then now we're incentivizing them to be sensitive to operations. And so lastly, same thing, if we have an incident or a near miss and we investigate it, we do the analyses, we figure out what happened. So now we're committing people, or excuse me, we're incentivizing and recognizing people for being committed to resilience. So ultimately, if we tie incentives and recognitions to each part of that program and each part of that builds those high reliability principles, then now we're incentivizing and recognizing high reliability principles instead of just a random number. So now we look back at that bridge we're trying to cross, okay? So once again, now we know we're trying to get from those you know, normal accidents, the unsafe conditions, unsafe behaviors, and we're trying to get across that bridge to high reliability. And so to get there, we have to be able to lead people because we want people to be engaged and we want them to be involved. So we have to incentivize them to do that. And so now we're gonna put that safety management system in place and we're gonna build those high reliability principles with our hazard analysis and our hazard controls and our information program and our, our leading indicators. So now we're gonna incentivize each of these things. So if we incentivize someone or recognize someone for being involved with the hazard identification, or the hazard controls, or the communication, or the leading indicators, then now we're incentivizing and recognizing people for being involved and being engaged. And their positive reinforcement will continue to build engagement and participation there. So as we see there now, it's not, it's not a fluke, it's not toxic, it's not incentivizing something that's unethical or encouraging non-reporting. Now we're simply encouraging, recognizing, and incentivizing people to be involved in these parts of the program and these parts of the program build that high reliability culture. And as you can see, the other thing that's cool about it is that, um, oops, sorry, mouse got away from me there. If we look at that otherwise, you see, um, as, we're, um, as we're putting those components in place, there we go, excuse me. As we're putting those components in place, then um, that also amounts for that culture change that we've talked about, where we want the people that are subject to local culture, 50% of your population, we want them to choose to be safe instead of choose to be unsafe. And so as we put those safety management systems in place and build those high reliability principles, then by default, all of those things serve to influence people to want to work safely. So then by definition, it's going to positively influence those that are subject to local culture all at the same time. So to do this, now here's where it kind of gets into the tactics of it. 
how do we recognize and incentivize someone? Okay, so we know that we want to recognize and incentivize people for hazard identification, hazard controls, communication, leading indicators, lagging indicators. So now we look at what those things look like in the field or on the job. So let's say that we want it to be consistent and recurring. Okay, then we can, you know, we can recognize people for identifying hazards. So for example, if somebody if somebody recognizes hazards, then we can just put a nice note in the in the newsletter. You know, say we'd like to thank uh, we'd like to thank you know so and so for providing us valuable safety information about hazards in the workplace. You know, just something like that. I've gotten a lot of people that call me and they're just very thankful that I recognize them by name in a newsletter. You know, and that's consistent and recurring. Or if we want to be we want to recognize someone for a hazard control recommendation, I would say you know. We'd like to thank so and so for providing us, you know, valuable recommendations on safe work practices. You know, then that verbal recognition goes a long way. We can recognize people at meetings. We can recognize them in newsletters, on bulletin boards. You know, there's a number of ways to do this. We can put people in for organizational awards, and then of course, we can also um, we can do that in writing. We can do certificates of appreciation. You know, they only cost you know about a dollar. There's a number of ways to go about it. And then, of course, we can also do it where um, if we have a budget, you know, we can do things like gift cards or, or um, little trinkets or tokens. You know, there's a lot of ways to go about it. But the idea is that if we're consistent and recurring, then what we do is we build participation. So we get people to where they want to provide hazards. They want to provide control recommendations. They want to give us good stories. They want to do near miss reports. They want to help with inspections and help with observations. So each of these things we can recognize people for, or we can incentivize people for doing. And so those are participation-based and they're also performance-based. So if people help with them, then they're engaged, they're participating, then we can recognize and incentivize that. Or when we check people, you know, if we say, I'm gonna observe somebody working and that person works safely, they follow the right SOP, they use the PPE, you know, whatever the criteria is, then we can recognize and incentivize that. You know, we can do like, like caught being safe, you know, we, we observe, you know, we did, um, we'd like to recognize so-and-so for continual safe work practices. You know, very simple. Certificate of appreciation, little trinkets, you know, these things can be incentivized and recognized very easily. So what it does is it incentivizes and recognizes people to where they want to help with these things. And then while they're helping with these things, people will be working safely and they'll be providing recommendations. And so all these things now generate safe work or they generate data and information that now helps us to improve our, our safety management system. And then as we're doing this, we can also do a long-term recognition. So for example, let's say that, um, you know, consistently throughout the year, we're recognizing people for working safely or for helping with, with hazard identification or with controls or with leading indicators. And so then at the end of the year, we can do an awards program. So we can say, you know, we're gonna do an award for, um, uh, for safety leadership, you know, and the criteria can be about one of the supervisors that helps with the safety committee and helps with uh, job safety analysis and helps with communication and leading indicators. You know, these are all things that we can do awards for. Or we can do an award for um, departments that excel with leading indicators. You know, they have high performance on, on performing observations and inspections and their risk reports. And then they have... Um, highly observed safe work practices. You know, like if you have an observed observation with 10 components and all 10 of them were observed to be safe every time, 
that can be an award for that. You know, it can be leading indicators or an award for um, safety leadership or an award for um, uh, communication, you know, for a department that has a really good safety communication program with you know, different bulletins and videos or newsletters and um, different things that we can look at and we can incentivize and recognize because now these things get people involved and then their involvement builds more safety. So we can have that recognition. With incentives, it's the same, same kind of thing. So if we want to incentivize someone to be involved, then you know it can be, you know, an incentive can be like a certificate of appreciation, or it can be, um, you know, something that if you have a budget, something that costs money, like a um, trinkets or little little items, or little tokens. Um, you know, a lot of organizations do challenge coins. So there's a lot of different things we can do there. And once again, we can make it participation based. But what we mean is. You know, we, we incentivize somebody for helping with a hazard identification or with a JSA or a fault tree analysis, or we incentivize someone for helping with communication and providing near mesh reports, or we incentivize someone for helping with observations. So all these things, whether it's recognition or whether it's incentives, then what that does is it makes people, uh, excuse me, it, it incentivizes people to participate and then their participation drives safe work practices and safe conditions. So these are all good things to think about. And the beautiful part is that all of those things tie back to those safety management systems and the safety management systems tie back to the high reliability principles. So what this does is it creates positive reinforcement, which in turn creates a valid and reliable safety culture. It's not based on you know, a fluke or good luck or not reporting or meeting an artificial metric. It's, it's based on reliably and valid, in a valid and reliable manner, <laughs> there we go, uh, creating, you know, safe work practices and safe conditions. Uh, then the last part of this is the events. So I know a lot of times organizations like to do things like safety fairs and whatnot, and that's that's all great. The good thing about it is that it can create a good opportunity for promotion and communication. So if you have a, a safety program, or if you have a, a theme or a, you know, a certain, certain logo or a slogan, you know, it's a great way to, to make that, you know, hardwired. You know, you can always use that for your promotion and your communication. And the other thing is that you can use that to communicate different hazards in the workplace. You know, so you can do a, a safety fair table on bloodborne pathogens and slip trips and falls and workplace violence and needle stick prevention and, you know, mechanical hazards, electrical hazards. So it gives you a good opportunity to be able to communicate these hazards and the expectations and so as you see, the last thing there is we can tie this to our hazard controls. So if we want to, you know, do a safety fair and we have each table set up, you have each table set up for a different hazard, then you can also include the expectations for your organization. So for example, if you're doing a table on needle stick prevention, then you can have the, the SOP for drawing blood and the SOP for giving an injection and SOP for running an IV. And that way, it ties it back to those knowledge, skills, and abilities. And then you can also have a sample of the equipment that you use. You, know, you can have a sample of the needles and a sample of the, um, the different equipment that's used for those processes. And so then from there, now you're reinforcing the hazard, the hazard control expectation, and the particular equipment. So they can see all these things you know, for each of the hazards and each of the expectations. And that way you can tie that all into a safety fair. So, it's something that you know people like to attend. It's fun, and they learn a lot, and they're able to reinforce those specific safety expectations, which creates more 
safe work practices and, and safe conditions. So those are all good things to think about there. And these are some examples of um, some ways that we've done this in the past. So um, as you can see there, um, oops, we've done um, some different events where we had different classes and we had different um, different uh, different themes and different tables with different information. Each of the tables had a different hazard. Each of the hazards had the expectations there. So we had the equipment and the processes so people could go through and reinforce those things. And then it also tied it all together with different vendors that are involved and different, um, different you know, little trinkets and little tokens of appreciation. And of course, it all varies depending on the budget and depending on um, you know, personnel requirements and facilities and things of that nature. But, uh, but the cool thing is that we're able to tie all of these things back to the safety needs. So now not only are we doing positive reinforcement, but we're positively reinforcing the specific safe work practices. And then we're doing that by positively reinforcing the things that are involved in each of our safety management systems. So our hazard identification, hazard controls, communication, leading indicators, lagging indicators. And then as we incentivize those parts of that safety management system, now we're promoting people to be involved with the things that create high reliability. So all of it ties together so that it's valid and reliable. And we're not just incentivizing someone to you know, meet a artificial metric. And so within that, everything becomes proactive. And then the good thing about that is that if we're proactive, then we're preventing incidents. And if we're preventing incidents, then we don't have to worry about meeting a lagging indicator metric because it's a byproduct. We'll have higher safety, we'll have lower risk, and then we'll meet those metrics anyway. So then lastly, to kind of put it in one more perspective there, you can see all these things can be done, whether it's engagement, you know, asking for recommendations, asking for subject matter expertise, prevention with hazard controls, communication, validation through leading indicators, all of these things are, um, all these things can be done, you know, within 10, 15, 20 minutes a week. So we're able to look for hazards, make recommendations, provide leading indicators, and all those things can be done by everybody. So if we incentivize those things, then we have that much more participation, that much more reliability. <clears throat> so within that, as you can see how it all kind of ties together, but um, if you have any questions or concerns or um, anything I can help with, you know, feel free to let me know. And my contact information is here. I'm always happy to talk offline. But uh, with that, if there's anything up right now, we'd be happy to, um, happy to discuss. Great. Thank you so much, Corey. We appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. We did want to remind our audience members that if you would like to ask a question, please click on that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. Before we start the Q&A, I want to let everyone know about an evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Uh, your input is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. And with that, Corey, we can get to some questions here. Uh, the first question I have for you is, uh, you mentioned a magic word for some folks, and that word is budget. Uh, we're curious, what items have you used for incentives and communication? And did you have a budget? Yes, um, great question. 
So I've done it both ways. Uh, I should say I've done the whole spectrum as far as, you know, absolutely no budget all the way up to, you know, having some, having some resources. So, you know, the, what I can say there is it's good to look at these things and, you know, it's a good thing to talk about with the safety committee and with, with the people that are involved because you can figure out what you're going to recognize and what you're going to incentivize, you know, whether it's people being involved in the safety committee or people providing recommendations or near mission reports or, you know, observations or inspections. Um, and then you can kind of decide what you, what you have resources for. So whether it's going to be, you know, verbal and written recognition or certificates or, you know, usually pretty easy to tie into a budget because it's already, you know, you already have the paper and the copier. Um, and you can look at if you have a budget, then you can look at if you want to do little trinkets or little, you know, little items for some of the some of the consistent and recurring things like providing recommendations and near miss reports. And then you can also look at if you have money for bigger things, like at the end of the year, if you want to do an awards program um, or if you want to do any kind of different mementos, then you have more money to spend on that. But either way, you know, I'd say it's equally effective because what you're doing is providing positive reinforcement, whether it's, you know, a small, whether it's written or, or verbal communication or whether it's, you know, an actual item. Great. We have, uh, obviously, Corey, you know, the COVID-19 has impacted the way a lot of folks work. And a question from our audience has been, um, how have you seen safety fair events handled in the COVID environment? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. And for, for due diligence, um, let me back up just a second on that. And I'll say that, you know, with COVID-19, of course, we have our hazard controls. And so within that, that will be capacity limits, uh, social distancing, face covers, hand hygiene, surface, you know, sanitation and disinfection. And um, of course, that's if you don't have, you know, separate physical areas and virtual work and all the different controls that are above the administrative controls. So um, it, with this day and age, you know, of course, it's very necessary to watch out for, you know, safe conditions and safe practices with COVID-19. So any, any events, you know, like a safety fair or something like that, it would have to be managed, you know, pretty carefully right now to where, you know, we have capacity limits on the room. So you didn't have a lot of people in there. And then you'd have to have, you know, your social distancing. So you'd have, again, your capacity limits, but then the room will be set up so that people wouldn't be, you know, within proximity. And then you have your face covers and then you'd have, you know, hand, hand hygiene available. You wouldn't want to share any items. You wouldn't want to have anything touched by a lot of people. Um, so yeah, definitely you'd want to tie in those COVID-19 exposure prevention protocols to any, any event like a safety fair. Uh, definitely right now it's a little, little out of the ordinary for, for events like that. One of our audience members, Corey, would like to know if you could share some examples of both short-term and long-term incentives or recognition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, what we were talking about earlier where we have the, um, the recurring and consistent recognition and incentives, and then you have the, the long-term. So if we're talking about recurring and consistent, then that would be, you know, if throughout each week, if we look and see, you know, who's providing us um, hazard identification information or who's providing us recommendations for the safety committee or who's coming to every safety committee meeting or, you know, who's, um, who's helping with near-miss reports, so these are things that we can do on a consistent and recurring basis. 
So then we're able to incentivize and recognize those things more frequently. So it'll be like short-term. Um, same thing applies with performance, where if we do observations and we see that you know certain people are always following the right protocols and always using the PPE and always working safely, then those are things that we can provide you know, short-term consistent um, incentives and recognition. Again, whether it's like a verbal recognition or written or a certificate or a little trinket that can be done more frequently. But then the long-term would be, for example, if you said, you know, we want um, whoever meets all the, all the goals for completion of leading indicators and also um, performance on leading indicators, then we'll have an award for that at the end of the year. You know, and that can be like a long-term, a bigger type of incentive. It can be like a nice plaque or whatnot, if you have the resources. Or if not, you know, it, it can be a nice certificate and it gets the same thing done, which is, you know, positive reinforcement. So the longer term would be things that accumulate over a longer period of time, you know, to incentivize people to be very consistent and forward thinking. Great. We have time for one more question for you today, Corey. And uh, one of our audience members would, would like to know, uh, could you discuss the importance of communication within the safety team? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the communication is, um, is really imperative um, on all levels. So yeah, within the safety team, you know, the important part of there is that that would be the peer-to-peer -peer conversations as far as, you know, the hazards that are emerging or the different, you know, state of affairs with the different hazards and the controls and what's happening with, you know, whether it's, whether it's assessing a new control or implementing one or providing training on one or, um, you know, um, or, or communication such as, like we said, near miss reports or, you know, good catch reports or um, different stories and experiences or anecdotes, case studies. And then of course you have your leading indicators, you know, developing the, the protocols for your observations and inspections and then doing the observations and inspections and what the findings are. So all of those things, you know, are always things that should be talked about within the safety team because we want to make sure that everybody's on the same page and able to be progressive with identifying the hazards, putting the controls in place, communicating the expectations, validating the expectations with the leading indicators, and then measuring the lagging indicators. So within the safety team, you know, they definitely want to want to keep up the data on all those different things and then create a unified message that's going to be put out to the rest of the employee population as to what the situation is with safety and, and how it's being addressed. Great. Well, thank you, Corey. Uh, unfortunately, folks, we have run out of time today. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of the unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback via our survey. I'd like to thank our outstanding presenter, Corey Worden, everyone from our sponsor at Aveta, and of course, all of you who joined us today. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care and have a safe day, everyone.